one of the things that's been a great encouragement to me is uh, many times in ministry, if you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, there's really very little new that you will hear. Paul even says that his job is to stir up by way of remembrance the things that you already know. A few weeks ago, uh, <clears throat> right around Valentine's Day, Valentine's Day, we had the opportunity to have our own kind of in-house marriage conference weekend. One of the things that was just a tremendous blessing is folks that have been married the longest were the ones who were most superlative with their praise for the event. Larry and Ellen Gregory, uh, Al and Judy Beckler, um, Harriet and uh, Henry Grantham all came up and said, you know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but we learned something or two this weekend. And it was one of the richest weekends that we have had together as a married couple. I've heard that from several people. And so one of the things that's sometimes difficult, I deal with this with my kids. Uh, every night before we go to bed, we read a Bible story. Now, my oldest is 10 years old. She has done, gone through every children's Bible we own uh, at least once. And there's the temptation sometimes when we get to a story like Noah and the Ark for the kids to go, Hey, Dad, we have... Um, We've heard that one before. We, we've listened to that. <clears throat> and the truth is, sometimes that happens in church. And today, uh, as we continue our series talking about the church, uh, one of the important concepts to talk about when we talk about the church is to talk about stewardship. And so I will give you full, uh, full warning. Uh, today, in our sermon, we will talk about money. So, Donnie, you watch the back doors there. In some churches, when you announce that as your topic... Goodness, you start to see men grasping their wallet, and you see women put the bear hug on their purse. And so let me assure you today that while we're talking about money, um, our goal is not your wallet, not in any way, shape, or form. Uh, God is faithful to provide all the money that His church needs. And if He doesn't provide it, then we don't, we don't need it. There may be other questions that we need to ask. <clears throat> today, our target is our hearts, because you find this as a parent. If you settle for outward conformity to, your rule, to rules with your kids, you may get outward behavior, but inner rebellion. But if you get your kids' hearts, guess what you get? You get obedience on the outside and on the inside. And it's the same for us big kids, too. If, if God has our hearts, then guess what else He has? He has our wallets. He has our calendars. And so today... I hope that you'll relax your grip on your wallet and your purse. And unless you have come to church wearing a bulletproof vest, that you will allow your hearts to be exposed to the truth of God's Word. Now, there is no denying that most preachers do not look forward to preaching on money. Part of that is because there have been a few knuckleheads out there that have um, been ungenerous in how they have handled uh, leadership roles in church. There are a few folks out there that have been... um, not above board in how money is handled. And so in the 90s and the early 2000s, scandals in the church have made preachers even more hesitant to uh, address this topic. And their discomfort is sometimes very obvious in the way that they title their sermons. They try to be funny all the way throughout. And they call it the Sermon on the Amount instead of the Sermon on the Mount. Fit to be tithed. Blessed be the tithe that binds. Now listen, I'm not opposed to sermons specifically addressing giving and money. I'm just afraid that they miss the mark. Because there are people in our churches every Sunday that put their bills in the plate, but they keep their hearts far from God. And that's not the way that it's supposed to be. So this morning I hope to set the whole idea of giving in a slightly different light. Now I know if you have been in the church for a long time, There's the temptation to do just like my kids have done and say, but pastor, we have heard that before. Well, this morning, let's just trust God that he will give us the instruction and the illumination that we need to be faithful to him in our day and age. And so uh, this morning, we will be in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to look at two very brief parables over three verses. Matthew chapter 13, uh, we'll be looking specifically at verses 44 through 46. And it's important for me to set the context here a little bit. Matthew 13 is a fascinating chapter. 
Uh, it is one of the greatest collections of Jesus' parables. In this one chapter, there are eight distinct parables that Jesus tells. Now, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there, there really are about 38 parables, just depending on how you count them, 38 parables that Jesus tells. 16 of those, almost half, 43%, if my math is right, 42%, have to do with money and possessions. The truth is that Jesus spoke on money and possessions almost more than any other topic that he spoke about. Why? Because you really know something about a person when you know what they spend their money on. Isn't that interesting? If you want to know what is important to a person, two books you can check. Uh, They're appointment book and their checkbook. And you can pretty much figure out with a, a great deal of accuracy what is happening. Now, in Matthew 13, there's an important distinction that we need to know. Uh, the very first couple of parables that Jesus tells, he tells to a crowd of people. It says that there are great crowds that are following him. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. However, when you get to verse 13, <clears throat> you see something that is very interesting. He talks about why he speaks in parables. In verse 13, he says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. You skip down to verse 16, and he says, Parables hide some things and reveal some things. He says to his disciples specifically, But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. Jesus spoke in parables because it hid things from whom they needed to be hidden, and they revealed things to whom they needed to be revealed. And so it's important to note that by the time he gets to verse 36, Jesus has transitioned from addressing the crowds. In verse 36, it says, Then he left the crowds, and he went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. So Jesus has moved from <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a realm of public proclamation to now in a house, in a small group, talking to his most loyal followers, and then telling them and explaining some things to them. Now, parables are, are interesting. Um, <clears throat> they are Jesus' most beloved teaching tool. We love them because they're short little stories or pictures, word pictures, that carry some punch completely uh, out of proportion to their size. I was asking a church member the other day um, if they had a good definition for what parables were. And what they told me was it was a couple stories told by Larry Muncy. <laughs> I, I warned you, brother, it was coming. <laughs> parables are not two stories that Larry Muncy tells. Parables are short, pithy statements that carry a teaching point that Jesus wants to make. And so uh, in these three short verses, Jesus pairs two parables together. And while the stories themselves are distinct, the meaning is very much the same. And so in the first parable, the parable of the hidden treasure, a man stumbles quite by accident upon a treasure of innumerable value. Let's read that in verse 44. <clears throat> God's word says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, this is a great little story. Uh, every little boy that I am aware of loves a treasure hunt. So you get you a little brown paper bag, and you cut it out, and you put a little X here, and you put a dot, 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 and you show them where the buried treasure is. And listen, you can entertain your little boy for hours with that. You don't even need to put anything but like a plastic shovel at the end of the rainbow, and they're going to be happy because they'll have something to look for. Well, evidently, burying treasures or burying talents. Remember another parable? The man who buried his talent? Burying treasure or burying talents was the norm. There's no bank. There's no safety deposit box. There's no safe where you can put your valuables. And so if you have things of value that you want to keep marauding bands of raiders from getting to, um, pesky neighbors or perhaps um, 
uh, people that you're related to that want to keep borrowing money, what are you going to do with it? You're going to bury it in the ground. You're going to cover it up. Uh, evidently, the sandbox was the safety deposit box in that day and age. And so there were a variety of things that would happen. People would die. Lands would be conquered. People groups would be dispossessed. Land would be sold. And guess what would happen? Doggone it. Where to, put that, where to put that treasure? And so before you sell the land, you try to get out your little treasure map, dig up all your little pots of gold that you've got buried somewhere, but inevitably, you'd forget one. Or the record of it would be gone whenever you passed away and someone else would come to possess your land. And so uh, there's gold and then there are hills if you just know where to look for it. And so this man is walking through a field, stumbles upon this treasure recognizes its value, and what does he do? The Bible says that he goes and he sells all that he has. Now, he didn't have a car, but he probably sold his oxen, probably sold his cart, probably sold every lick of clothing that he had, all of his clay pots, maybe sold his house, any property that he had held on to that had been passed down to him as a heritage. Everything that this man owned we're told, is sold so that he can buy this field. Now, sometimes in our day and age, we, we wonder about the um, um, ethicality of what this guy does. Well, notice what he does. He buys the field. Obviously, whoever is currently owning the field doesn't know that the treasure is there. And the man goes and follows the appropriate channels to purchase the field. Now, if he was really shrewd, he could have pulled a few coins out of that treasure and use those coins to pay for the field. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes and he does the right thing. And he, he liquidates all of his assets to buy the field. Well, bought at a price. And what a price it is. He has to give up everything. He now possesses a treasure that's far beyond the price that he sold. What a great little story. Well, in our second parable, we see a similar story that Jesus tells. In this parable, it's not a man who stumbles upon a treasure in a field. It's the parable of a merchant, uh, specifically a jeweler, who finds a pearl of great price of such perfection that he gladly liquidates his entire stock in order to have this one gem. Look with me at verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is a man who knows what he's looking for. Uh, this is a man who doesn't get it at a discount. He apparently pays a full price. But this single pearl so exceeds anything that he's ever seen in his life that he considers the price a fair trade for such an exquisite treasure. Now, there's some interesting differences. The man who stumbles upon the treasure in the field, uh, we don't have any indication what he does as a trade. He, he may simply be, as a man in the field, kind of a day laborer, perhaps a person of lower uh, socioeconomic status. And he stumbles upon this field quite by accident, not by design, and he knows what he finds and sells all that he has to have it. Now, the merchant is a businessman. Uh, he knows how to cut a deal. He knows how to how to get value out of negotiation. And he is specifically searching for that thing that is so perfect. The Bible says that in both of these parables, they're drawing an analogy to what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so while these stories um, have kind of their own distinct uh, picture that they paint, both parables emphasize something that every true disciple knows. And remember what I said. Jesus has gone from speaking to the crowds to speaking just to his disciples. And the point that he's trying to make here is that the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, salvation is an exceedingly and overwhelmingly great treasure that is worth every sacrifice one might make. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the gospel is worth your sacrifice? For both men in our parable, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the gospel is so infinitely more valuable than the cost of discipleship. Trick question. Is it costly to be a Christian? 
careful how you answer that. It costs the Son of God his life, his blood. And while the offer of the gospel is offered to us free in grace, the cost of discipleship requires us to deny ourselves daily, to take up our cross and to follow him. It is costly to be a Christian. But the Christian who is constantly mindful of the cost is not the person who is focused on the prize. Not the person who says, but the treasure before me so outweighs the cost that I have to pay that it's a delight for me to make this sacrifice. And so in this sense, the gospel and giving are connected. And in our churches, we have to recapture this idea of the gospel being a treasure. It's interesting that when you go to most churches, our treasure doesn't seem to be quite as grand as the treasure that both of these men found. Sure, we might love it. It's our tradition. It's our habit. But is it a treasure? Do we love it? Are we actively seeking ways in which we can take joy in the treasure that God has given us that is spiritual in nature, that so captivates our livelihood, our emotions, our wants, that we will elevate the spiritual over the physical at every point? You see, the treasure is pretty much outrightly rejected by non-Christians. The treasure of salvation is not obvious to men, and therefore they do not naturally seek it. It doesn't make sense to them as to why Christians would prize it and give up so much. Why would you give up your self-dependency? Why would you give up hedonistic pleasure? Why would you sometimes even give up your social, political, financial, uh, economic freedoms? To gain what is perceived as so little. So you can go to church every Sunday? So you can pray? So you can read your Bible? Why walk a narrow path when the wide way is so much more easy, well-lit, and well-populated? Why stumble over roots and have to discern very carefully whether you're staying on on the path? And we're reminded in the song that our ladies just sang, that there are many, like the rich young ruler, who value the kingdom, but not enough to give up everything to have it. And they turn away and they walk away very sad. They value the pearl of great price, but they refuse to sacrifice to receive it. You see, we have to recover this idea of the gospel being a treasure because we live in a world that doesn't see it as worth very much at all. And if we were more passionate about what God has done for us, they wouldn't see our faith as simply our tradition. They wouldn't simply see it as our way. They wouldn't simply see it as a convenience or a choice, but something about which we are very passionate. You see, if the gospel is a treasure, doesn't that change everything? It changes everything. This is how a sermon on giving is also about the gospel. If the gospel truly indeed is a treasure, then guess what? We're willing to sacrifice. We're willing to sacrifice all in a world that is not willing to sacrifice anything. We're willing to make a commitment in a world that makes a commitment to nothing but self. And so when we have the opportunity to gather as Christians and even have the audacity to say that God owns everything we have and that it is our joy to give to Him. What a testimony to a world that doesn't understand anything but living for self. I love the words of a Scottish preacher named Thomas Guthrie from the 1800s. He penned this poem. talking about the riches of the gospel, the treasure of the gospel. And he lists out all of these ways that the gospel is a treasure. He says this, The gospel is a treasure in the blood of Christ to wash out sin's darkest stains. In the grace of God to purify the foulest heart. In the peace of God to calm life's roughest storms. In hopes to cheer guilt's darkest hour. In a courage that defies death 
and descends calmly into the tomb. And that which makes the poorest rich, and without which, which the richest are poor indeed. The gospel has treasures greater far than east or west unfold. And its rewards are more precious than all the stores of gold. Friend, it's true. If you have found the abundant life, the life everlasting that God has given to you, it's a treasure. And, and just like a diamond, that every time you turn it just a pinch, it glimmers and glitters just a little bit differently. The gospel is a treasure for us to ponder. It's something for us to be amazed at. And so the problem, unfortunately, is not just the tre- that the treasure of the gospel is rejected by non-Christians, but it is many times undervalued by Christians. Many times undervalued by Christians. Our priorities oftentimes don't line up with what we say we believe about the treasure of the gospel. Now listen, we just rejoice in the fact that we are in a church that is generous enough to give money for missions. But isn't it true in your own heart of hearts that sometimes you're willing to be honest your priorities and the priorities that the gospel demands don't always line up friend listen this is not an issue of guilt it's an issue of humanity there are all we we all suffer from weak moments where our priorities are not indeed what the gospel would demand and so the question is this how do we grow in this whole idea of god glorifying stewardship Well, I think there are several things, and you'll see them here on your screen to listen to. Uh, The first is this. We have to recognize that everything we have, money, time, abilities, and possessions, ultimately come where? From God. We have to recognize that everything we have, money, time, abilities, and possessions, comes from God. This, this, weird, this word stewardship is not a popular word. It's probably not one that you have used this week. Um, a, a steward, um, if you've ever been on a cruise, you know what a steward is. He's the person who has a responsibility for caring for all of the cruise passengers on this floor. So he's making sure you know where to go. He's making sure that you've got your towels. He's making sure that the hot water works in your room, making sure that room service is working appropriately, that you know of entertainment options. He has a responsibility to manage a set group of people. And so when we talk about stewardship, we're talking about recognizing that everything we have comes from God and managing that well. Managing our car to the glory of God. Managing our house to the glory of God, managing our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, our relationships with co-workers, with neighbors, to the glory of God. In some way, uh, a steward might be like a butler. So if you've grown up watching uh, television shows, Mr. Belvedere, um, you have a man who had a responsibility to care for the household. And as a steward, we are recognizing the fact that everything we have belongs to God. And if the gospel is indeed a treasure, if the gospel is truly a treasure, we will invest our money, our time, and our abilities differently. Being a good steward is how we treasure the treasure. Number two, we have to recognize that stewardship is about all of life, all of the time. There is the temptation in churches that when we talk about stewardship, the only thing we talk about is what you put in the plate. Therefore, stewardship is only about five minutes in the service when the silver holy plates get passed around the church. Listen, that's definitely a component of stewardship, but that is not all that stewardship is. Stewardship is about all of life, all of the time. Number three, stewardship of finances specifically becomes a barometer, becomes a shorthand for all of the other areas of life. You know, we said this, uh, it becomes, finances become a little bit of a telltale signal of what people's other priorities are. 
And so when you look at a checkbook, when you look at a appointment book, you can figure out why, uh, what a person values, what a person's priorities are. I think it's interesting that there's only one thing that God says you can't serve and serve God at the same time. Why in the world would God single out money and the love of money to say that you can't serve God and mammon? Money has the ability to make you selfish, self-reliant, uh, self-contained, uh, self-made man. You just can't do that. So looking at how someone spends their money and how they spend their time, allow this whole idea of finances to be a barometer for other issues of spiritual health. And if we look at some facts, the, the facts are not encouraging as a nation. You know that the average gift to a church is between 1% and 3% in falling. For about 40 years, since about the 1960s, um, church giving, charitable giving, has been at about the 3% mark. Now, according to some experts, over the last four years, charitable giving has gone from a 40-year rate of around 3% that some are saying it really appears that we have cut that in half over the last four years. So a long-standing tradition of 3% giving to churches and to other charitable organizations has been cut in half to about 1.3%. Does that surprise you? It's kind of shocking to hear, but we've lived with it for so long that it's just interesting. Now, according to some calculations that we've done over the last couple of weeks, uh, Northside is on the high side of the national average. So if um, charitable giving is around 1.3%, we're, we're quite a bit closer to the 3%. Um, that is some cause for rejoicing. But we have to understand that when we talk about biblical giving and we have some conception of the tithe, to congratulate ourselves on a 3% charitable giving is kind of like congratulating yourself on having a higher failing grade than your classmate. Hey, I got a 57%. You got a 50. You know, woohoo. I don't know that that's the motive that we want. There were several of us that um, had the opportunity here in early January to travel to a um, really neat, very promising stewardship campaign, finance, financial education uh, ministry for churches. Based upon our church attendance, our church membership, and kind of the, uh, the demographics, what zip codes we lived in, they provide a service where they look at averages in your area for us, Rock Hill, and they look at what our attendance numbers, membership numbers look like, and they crunch all those numbers and they spit them back out and they tell you what your church budget would look like if your members tithed. You want to know what that would be? It was over, uh, Reed and Candy, you're going to have to fact check me on this, it was over $1.5 million. $1.7? dollars million. Anyone know what our budget is right now? Just out of curiosity. About 600,000. So that bears that if we should be at about 1.5 million and we're at about 600,000, we're about a third of the way that we need to be. Now listen, that's why we have this conversation. This is a much better conversation to have when you're not in a money crisis. I served at a church that had $1,500 in the bank. And they called an emergency business session to say, what are we going to do? Because we we don't have enough money to pay our staff right now. What do we cut? That's not a fun conversation to have when you're immediately faced with the implication of having to make hard choices. Now listen, for whatever reason, God is at work in our congregation. Our, Our giving is healthy. Um... We had, we had a wonderful time today. That doesn't mean that we still... That, that does not invalidate the fact that we need to examine our hearts and to really examine whether we believe that the gospel is a treasure. Now, the truth of the matter is that national statistics indicate that, that much less than 5% of Christians tithe. So if we have 300 people here, um, that's what, 15 people? So we have 15 people perhaps among us today that are practicing anywhere close to a biblical tithe. So we've done a couple things here to um, just enlighten the congregation to some things that I think are very interesting. There's a couple charts that we're going to show you here. And I'm going to come down here so I can see them good. Um, 
This is a basic, any, any church um, generosity service will give you this chart and say you need to fill it out so that you have an understanding of what your church's giving looks like. And so this basically, oh, you know what? It kind of pulls up, you lose the bottom there. Uh, I'll read it to you so we're clear about that. When we talk about our church's giving, we have 11 people at the very top that give over $8,000 a year to the church. You can see that the largest group of givers that we have is in the $4,000 to $7,999 range. That's 38 people. And so you can go down from 8000 up being kind of our largest givers down to the very bottom to see that uh, we've got about 21 people, mostly kids, that give in the uh, $1 to 99 range. Now, if there's any number that jumps out to you, what should it be? Did you see the number at the bottom? 419 church members that give the whopping total of $0 to the church. Now, what would happen if those 419 people gave $5 a week to the church? You think they could afford $5 a week? Yeah. It would revolutionize our church, wouldn't it? I don't know what we would do with $1.1 million than we have right now. It would be awesome. We'd have the opportunity to be hilarious in our charity to other needs. It'd be awesome to read the Herald every Monday morning and find out all the bad stuff that happened to people in Rock Hill and say, what can we do to bless this family whose house burnt down? They're not our members, but they're our neighbors. What can we do to help them? What can we do to give cars to people who um, maybe they have sold their cars because their children are in medical emergency? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a church that isn't known because of its programming, but is known because of its love and its generosity to the community? That'd be one of the things I'd want to see if we had that kind of money. Listen, we had a $1.7 million budget. We wouldn't be talking about a relocation project for 15 or 20 years. We'd, we'd move quick. It would happen amazingly fast. We'd have $1.1 million per year, more than what we're doing to operate right now. And so this is an interesting thing. Let's look at the next slide. This one was very interesting to me for a variety of reasons. Um, you can see here uh, that our 41 to 50-year-olds are, as an aggregate, the largest dollar-giving uh, population in our church. That's pretty good. Now, you see there's, uh, where is it? There's 26 of them. But you can see our top three givers are our 41 to 50-year-olds, followed by our 61 to 70-year-olds, followed by our 71 to 80-year-olds. And you can see the relative size, the number of givers, this doesn't differentiate whether you're a single giver or whether you give as a couple. If you give as a couple, you're one of those 38. If you give as individuals, then you're one of those people. This is giving units, not singles versus couples. It's just units. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting. You can see who the top three uh, people within our life, where they are when it comes to their giving. It's our 40 to 50-year-olds, our 60 to 70-year-olds, and our 70 to 80-year-olds. But when you stop to look at what their gifts are per capita, when you take their total giving and you divide it by the group, here's something that's really interesting. Our largest per capita giving group is, again, our 40 to 50-year-olds. So our 40 to 50-year-olds are leading the way. I don't know that that should surprise anyone, but it's heartening to know that uh, we have young people that are supporting the church and supporting it healthfully. Sometimes there's the implication or the teaching that if you're under 60, you really don't give to the church. That's not true when you actually stop to look at the numbers. Here's the thing that's most fascinating to me. Uh, our 30 and 40-year-olds right there, they don't make the top three for their total amount of giving, but look at what their per capita giving is. They're the second leading group in our church. Now, we only have 16 giving units in the 30 to 40 age range, but they're the second highest group of people when it comes to per capita giving. Does that encourage you? That's great. These are people who don't have the benefit of a long life and a paid-off house and no debt. These are people who are in the midst of kids, maybe ailing parents, and they're getting it on both ends, and they are being faithful to the church with their giving. And so you see that our 40 to 50-year-olds are our leading group when it comes to per capita giving. Our 30 to 40-year-olds are our second leading group in per capita giving. And our 50 to 60-year-olds are, the, uh, are leading the way when it comes to per capita giving. This is good to know. 
Because I think sometimes there is the opportunity to talk disparagingly, generically, about age, age groups in our church. Well, those young people don't give. Or those old people don't give. Um, the truth is, the giving here at the church is spread around pretty well. And so from that perspective, there is indeed some financial health. <clears throat> Let's look at our next point, point number four. The Bible is certainly not silent on the issue of giving. You remember what I said? Uh, 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables deal with the issue of money and possessions. There are approximately 2,350 verses in the Bible on finances, possessions, and generosity. That's a lot of verses that have to do with where your treasure is. Point number five. I think this is a good one. You do not give to a budget. You don't give to a budget. You give to God. I I know some folks who um, their giving is dependent on what last week's offering was. And so if you were $6,000 over what was required, guess what they get to do this next Sunday? They get to not give. And so, well, you know, we're meeting budget. Does the Bible put any kind of qualification on our giving? No. And when you have the mentality that you're giving to a budget, you're tempted to do really strange things with your money. That's why we say you don't give to a budget. You give to God. The goal is not... Uh, is not institutional survival. The goal is life transformation, not financial transactions. It is good for you to learn how to hold your things with an open hand instead of a clenched fist. You're giving God control over more of your life. Now, the truth is, as people give to God, guess what happens? The church does not suffer. The church will thrive. And the truth is that churches very rarely have budget problems. Instead, they have faithfulness problems when it comes to people holding on to things and not being content to give to God. I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that you're supposed to give according to your income instead of God making your income according to your giving? What if he changed that for a week or two? Your income was based upon your charity, your generosity. Well, don't think about that too long. Just asking the question. Number six, Uh, I'm fully aware that this is going to step on some toes, so I'll I'll have a little more explaining to do. Tithing is not the best approach to talk about financial stewardship. Now, there's no denying that tithing is a biblical concept. It is, however, an Old Testament concept. That changes when we get to the New Testament. The New Testament concept is sacrificial giving. Why? Why? When the Christian faith started in a Jewish context, do we not worship on Saturday? Why do we not worship on Saturday? Somebody's got to know this. Because Sunday is what? Resurrection Day. The church, which started out among the Jews, changed its day of worship because the resurrection of Christ changed everything. And they said, in distinction to our Jewish forebears, we're going to worship on Sunday not on Saturday. Well, let me, let, me, let me tell you why I think the New Testament pattern is sacrificial giving as opposed to tithing. Jesus is our model. What did Jesus sacrifice? Everything. He gave it all up to purchase a people for God's glory. And so I will say this. Don't, don't think that sacrificial giving is less than 10%. If God required 10% in the Old Testament and he requires sacrificial giving in the New Testament, let me just be real honest. There are some people in our congregation that 10% is not a sacrifice anymore. You have been wise with your money. God has, has blessed your generosity. So if you hold to an Old Testament concept, you go, I've done my 10%, I'm done. Guess what? You might not be sacrificing. There's, a, there's a, a thing in geometry that is very helpful. And um, <clears throat> I'm in very dangerous territory talking about math while my wife is out of town. So I will try to make this very, very, very quick. Um, 
What's the what's the what's the instrument that does the um, the circle? It's a is it a compass? Okay, the compass. Okay, so you take a compass, you you poke the sharp um, pointy end in the, into the paper, and you draw yourself a circle. Okay, and that circle is life. <clears throat> there are two concepts when it comes to geometry that have bearing upon how we live as Christians. The first is called bounded set identity. What a bounded set identity is concerned with is the, the boundary, the circumference. And what they want to know is, um, if this is out and this is in, this is where the boundary is, what do I have to do to get inside the boundary? So if you are a bounded set giver, what is your mentality? How little do I have to give to be a good Christian? Now listen, we'll rejoice at any kind of faithfulness, even half faithfulness. It's better than no faithfulness. Bounded set people are concerned about the boundary. What do I have to do to go from here to here? Not here, just from here to here. In contrast to that, bounded set dynamics is centered set dynamics, which they're not concerned about the boundary. They're concerned about the trajectory. So you might be out here. You might not be doing anything, but you start putting a dollar a week in the plate. What have you just done? You've taken a step. You might not be in yet, but what are you doing? You're moving in the right direction. And then who knows, maybe a couple months down the road, you put $5 a week in. What are you doing? You're moving in the right direction. And here's why this whole idea of moving towards the center, not worried about the boundary, but moving to where God's heart is. And we know that God's heart is towards sacrifice. He did it with his son. Is that there is the temptation as Christians to become very proud of the fact that we've tithed for 40 years and we're content to hang out here. Where after 40 years, shouldn't you be closer to the heart of God when it comes to sacrificing of all the things that he has given to you? And so here's the good news. <clears throat> In this room, we have at least four different kinds of people. We have people that have never given to a church. On the opposite end of that, we've got people that have been supremely faithful to giving to their church over and above. In the middle, you've got people that are semi-regular givers and people who are regular givers. All four of these groups of people can learn from this distinction of bounded set versus centered set. Perhaps in your faithfulness or perhaps just getting started out, you hear 10% and you go, oh my goodness, I'm not doing anything. How can I get to that? Take a step in the right direction. For, for you, a step of faithfulness might be putting $5 in the plate on a Sunday. That's what, $250 a year. That might, be, that might be tons more faithful than you've been last year. Listen, if we have 300 people here and everyone increased, they are giving to the church by $5. You know what net effect that would have on our church budget? About $80,000. $5 a week. That's pretty amazing. And so the question for you is not where you're standing, but where you're moving to when it comes to sacrificing for God. And so uh, lastly, I conclude with this statement, uh, number seven, that we need to find ways to give progressively, to give systematically, to give spontaneously, and to give simply. Find ways to give progressively, systematically, spontaneously, and simply. Listen, when we talk about giving progressively, it's the challenge that I've just, I've just offered. There are all kinds of people who are here today, non-givers, semi-regular, regular, super abundant. Uh, giving progressively applies to all of us. If you have given the same amount for years, is God asking you to release your grip on the things that you are holding on to? Uh, $5 a week could be a big deal uh, to our church, whether you are a non-giver or a super abundant giver. Find ways to increase your faithfulness in your giving. <clears throat> give systematically. Um, I, I am doing something that I have done for the first time in my life. I give, I give weekly. Now, part of that is I get paid weekly. I used to get paid monthly, and so I tithe monthly. 
here's kind of the realization that I came to. People actually look at the giving statement when the newsletter goes out, and they go, oh, man, look, look at what our giving was this week. Now, if you've been here for any period of time, you know that basically the first week and the third week are good weeks for us. Second week and fourth week, don't look. Um, you, you, might, you might not be real happy with what you see. Here's the deal. We have a weekly budget, so I give weekly because I want to see our cash flow not do this. I want to see it do this. It's very difficult come October, November, when we start trying to predict cash flow, what's going to happen? Because our giving is so irregular. And so you may be one of those people that has the ability to give weekly. Anyone that manages money knows that this and this makes any kind of prediction very difficult when it comes to budget planning. But if, we're, if we are giving weekly, if we're giving very systematically or, or just regularly, it helps to make our cash flow look a little bit different. And for me, Deuteronomy 16, 16. The Lord says, don't appear before me empty-handed. I don't care if it's a dollar that I give my kids to put in the plate. Um, I don't want to appear before the Lord empty-handed. Find ways to give spontaneously. You need to give systematically, but be aware that there are other needs that may come up. There are families that are in need or in the midst of a capital campaign. Uh, We are progressing well there. Let me encourage you. Um, If you have not given your pledge, you've got, oh goodness, uh, I guess about a year to get it in. We're about halfway, a little bit more than halfway through our capital campaign. That's a great cause for us to rejoice. Uh, We are moving heartily towards our goal. But find ways to give spontaneously. Find ways to bless families. Find ways to bless your church. Find ways to give simply. I've been here for about six months maybe a little bit over that. And uh, I don't know if, I don't, this is probably a generational issue. I'm fully aware of that. In six months, you know how many paper checks I have written? Five. Now, I know some of you probably write five checks a week. Now, you're going, all right, you've only written five checks. How in the world are you paying your bills? Because paper checks are the only way to pay your bills. No, they're not. Everything I do is online. I bank online, switch money from checkings to savings accounts, send money to family members. I do it all online. And so I would say, if if you're under 40 and you never bring your checkbook to church, guess what you're never doing? You're never giving to God. We've got to find ways to make our plates bigger. You know, I mean, passing the plate is a relatively recent innovation, about 1850 they started doing this because money had become more commonplace. Before that, what did you bring for an offering? In the Old Testament, it was bulls and goats and sheep. I don't know how you put that in a plate. Um, I mean, you need a cart for that. And so online giving is a very valid option. One of the things that's great, a long time ago, I don't know who set it up, we've got online giving set up on our church website, and it is the best service available today. Uh, There's a surcharge of, I think, 16 cents for setting it up. But I just played around with it here this morning. I I set up a new account, just kind of playing around. And in three minutes and 50 seconds, I set up an automatic recurring deduction from my checking account, which means if I'm sick next week, um, if I'm on vacation, I'm going to India for two weeks, guess what happens? My tithe comes to the church because this is the most important place for me to give my money to. And it's important enough for me to automate it. And so if you're one of these people that you go, doggone it, I forgot my checkbook again. You can be faithful to God by finding a way to get your money to the church. And so find ways to give simply. Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Aka Indians in South America, had planned for years to bring the gospel to these people. And uh, they couldn't find them. They're one of these indigenous tribes that lives way back in the Amazon. And so they would fly over the forest looking for clearings to find these people. And finally they found them. And the whole missions team was so excited. Here are these people that we have heard about, and we finally have the opportunity to go and share the gospel with them. So they go on a seaplane. They land on, I think it was the Amazon River. And immediately upon meeting these villagers, they're killed. And yet Jim Elliott is the man who authored the quote, He is no fool 
who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. What's he saying? Where your treasure is, is where your heart is. And so friends, I, I hope that you hear very clearly that this is, not, this is not a negative, negative message. God has blessed every single one of us. Now it doesn't look the same from family to family. He owns everything that we have. And when we properly understand the gospel as a treasure, giving to God becomes one of the most supreme acts of worship that we can do. It becomes a get-to, not a got-to. And I just wonder, what would your church do if we were three times as faithful as we are right now? Fantastic to dream about. And God will, by His grace and for His glory, give us the ability to be more faithful. This morning, if you hear this and you go, these people are crazy. They're talking about giving up their hard-earned money to God. And this whole idea of sacrificing for someone that you can't see doesn't make sense to you. We would love to talk to you about uh, what the gospel means, about what Jesus did for you that puts in context why gospel people are giving people. If you're here this morning and you go, I I don't know that I get all this. We don't want to talk to you about your money. We want to talk to you about your heart. And we want to talk to you about your soul. There are some of you here that are looking for a church to call home. Say, where's a place that's going to give us biblical fellowship, biblical teaching, uh, worship that magnifies who God is? If you're interested in joining this church, we'd love to have you. We should be a better church because you're here, and you should be a better person because you're here. There may be some of you that just go, there are a variety of issues going on in my life, and I need to find a way to renew uh, my conviction and my commitment to serving God. So we have our time of invitation here this morning. I invite you to come. If you stand with me, let me pray for us, and then we'll prepare to sing. Lord, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your word. Lord, there, there is no way we can ever outgive you. We did not have to wake up this morning uh, worrying about the, whether the sun would rise. We may have to worry about our clocks a little bit this morning. But Lord, you're, you're faithful and true. You, you minister your grace and your mercy to us in many different ways. And even having been in this building for an hour, there are, uh, we have been enriched by the time that we've had together. There have been friends that we have seen. There has been encouragement that we have gotten. Uh, There have been ways that even you have applied this message from your word to our hearts. So, Lord, we we acknowledge that when we come to worship, we tithe our time. Uh, But, Lord, we, we, we want to give to you everything that you deserve. For you are a great and awesome God. We give you the thanks for the many ways that you have blessed us. May we attempt to bless your name by the way that we give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.